Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. I'm Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you all here again. I've got a show full of adventure for you today. We're going to travel the length of the country on horseback, not just once, not twice, but three times with my guest, Viv Woodgee, who is a member of the International Association of Equestrian Explorers, the Long Riders Guild. Viv, um, lovely to see you, lovely to speak to you. How are you doing? Doing very well indeed, thanks Tom. Good, I'm I'm really glad to hear it. Um, So uh, I guess what I usually do, what I'd really like to do, is just go right back to the start, Viv, and uh, how, why and how did you get into fell ponies? It's hard to say, I've thought about that many times. When I was a teenager, when from the age of about 11, I worked at a riding school on a voluntary basis, just down the road from where I lived on the Cheshire Derbyshire border. And I didn't get paid, but my payment was riding ponies to and from the field, bareback in the morning and back again at night. And it was several miles. And then when I could earn some money from doing odd jobs or whatever at home, I'd try and save up my money. And then I would hire a pony for a few hours and I'd ride off over the hills and far away. And one of my favourite ones to ride was a black pony called Bess. And none of the horses at that riding school were pedigree horses. You know, you just didn't even think about breeds. I didn't at the time. And when I look back on it now, I am absolutely sure she was a fell pony. And I had such great fun on her. And as I got older, when I was into my 20s, I really, really wanted a a pony. I had a Welsh cob, first of all. Um, Don't ask me why, but my sisters had Welsh cobs and that's what I ended up with. And then I had a few years without horses and then I was desperate to get my own horses again. And then I just knew it had to be a fell pony. I think there's something really, really appealing to me about the, I don't know, I love the blackness of them. I know they're not all black, but also I have Herdwick sheep. Um, I have dogs which are very close to wolves. And when I think about it, I think the same is true with fell ponies. They're very close to the wild they're very close to the um in being native they're very close to the sort of primeval and there's something about that that really appeals to me not when they're being really thorn you know and really naughty but i really love the fact that they are so hardy and that they just do their own thing yeah i get that completely all of that yeah perfect so where so where did the desire to start traveling with ponies come from Again, a bit hard to say in some ways because I can't really remember a day. I mean that genuinely. I cannot remember from the age of about eight, I cannot remember a day when I didn't want to travel with ponies. To me, that's what it was all about. I was born without a competitive gene in my body. I'm one of four sisters and my other three sisters were very pretty, very intelligent, did wonderfully at school. And then there was me. And I think that just sort of made me get rid of anything competitive whatsoever. I'm just not interested in it. So I've no interest in showing. Um, As anybody who knows me will know, I've no real interest in physical appearance. I can't understand why people spend hours and hours brushing manes and everything. What's always appealed to me is riding over the hills and far away. And when I think back, I think of being a child and watching films like um, there was one called The White Stallion with Mark Lester in it which was down on Dartmoor, and there was Mark Lester with his stallion out on the hills talking to it when he couldn't talk to anybody else. I think he was dumb, um, as in he couldn't talk, but he could communicate with this stallion, and I thought, yes, that's me. And uh, I used to read books about, they weren't famous five, they were kids going off for a week at a time with their ponies onto the hills, and that was just what I always, always wanted to do, but my parents didn't approve, and I just didn't get the chance to do it. So I'd go off for a day at a time when I could borrow a horse 
but um, but it was always there in me. And it wasn't really until I was 30 that I got the chance to do it on a lot longer basis. Actually, that's not that's not entirely, entirely true, Tom, because I also had a bug about driving horses, as you know. And I used to drive with my sister and I'm not talking fancy carriage driving. I'm talking driving drays, etc. And I went to Appleby Horse Fair once and I got talking to somebody there who became one of my very closest friends, Roland Wolfenden. And within a couple of hours of meeting each other, he said one of his great ambitions was to drive his gypsy caravan to Stone the World. And I said, oh, I'd like to do that. And we did do it the following year. So that was all part of it. And, and we never stopped to say, why do you want to do it? We just knew we wanted to do it together. There's something about the challenge. And Roland and I always used to talk about where we would do long distance drives together. He always wanted to do John O'Groats to Land's End and we talked about it often. But sadly, he never managed to do it. But he used to sort of do it by proxy and ring me up when I was away on long rides and say, Viv, where are you? I'm travelling with you in spirit. I remember Roland, um, and I've actually got a bit of footage of this somewhere, but Roland used to travel with a mule, didn't he, as a sideliner? And he had a, it wasn't a bow top, it was, I think it was some kind of square accommodation top, and I'm pretty sure he the door was at the back, and he got on through the door at the back, and the reins came through the window at the front. Was that right? It was. It was a Wigan wagon, he called it, because he lived just near Wigan, and he called it a Wigan wagon. And uh, Dino was the mule, and Jill was his main driving mare at the time. He had, uh, yeah, a, a bay mare, and that's who the mare and the mule are who we drove down to Stow on the World with. But after that, because I then went into fell ponies, and he came to visit me, he met all my fell ponies, and he bought himself a couple of fell ponies. I infected him with the bug too, and he was really impressed by them, and he knew that I was driving mine too. So, yeah, it's very contagious, isn't it? And I couldn't think of a nicer person to hang out with, actually, on the road somewhere. Yeah. You finally did get to do some long, amazing trips. And in Canada, where I got all my Paxil kit from, you would be known as a long rider. I think, is it right, in 2006, you did the journey from John O'Groats to Land's End? Yes, it is. So that was the longest trip I'd ever done. But from the time I was 30, I was doing a long trip every year as in even if just for a week or two at a time and I always wanted to go away and just set off from one place and not ride what people call petal rides every day but do a long trip and I always wanted to do that but I had kids and I was working and I had responsibilities so sadly there was a limit to how long I could go for so it was always just a week or two at a time and I had this real really strong urge to go and follow in the footsteps of the drovers from Skye to London. And then my daughter, who was 13 at the time, she said to me at Christmas in 2005, she said, oh, I quite fancy doing that. And I thought, now is the chance. You know, if we don't go now, we might never get this chance again. Because my main fell pony at the time, the main one I was riding, was 20. And my daughter's was 16 and in foal. And I thought, well, if we don't do it this year, we might not be able to take those two. This was before my daughter was stuck into doing standard grades, as we have in Scotland, rather than O-levels or whatever. And I thought the year after that, she won't be able to take the time off. So how old is she at this point? Uh, she was 13. We started planning it in about January, and we, we sort of set the ground rules for ourselves. And my ground rules are always the same, that only I set the rules. But we want to travel unsupported, and I've since been known to say 
that my only support is my sports bra, but I don't think I'd even come across those in that trip in 2006. You know, I'm not interested in having a support vehicle. I'm not interested in having a car following, meeting us at night or whatever. We just want to carry everything we've got in our saddlebags and set off on day one and then keep going till the end, hopefully. It isn't always quite as easy as that. But Tom, you asked there about being a long rider and I knew at that time, I'd already found the Long Riders Guild website and it was just, to me, that was my idea of porn. I really, really loved it. And there was some information on it, but it wasn't that well developed. And it was only, I didn't know how you became officially a long rider. All of that was irrelevant to me. I was just interested in learning from other people traveling all around the world. But when we finished doing that trip, when I came home again uh, in the autumn of 2006, I got a phone call out of the blue one day from the Long Riders Guild. And um, it was this American voice I didn't recognise. And they said, this voice said, hello, it's Cullen O'Reilly here. And I knew the name immediately. And he said, gee, I've read about what you and your daughter have done. And we would like to make you honorary members of the Long Riders Guild. You are Long Riders now. You can't apply to join that guild. You're invited. And that was very special. We didn't set out to be long riders. You know, I, I've since met quite a lot of people who've said, I want to ride a thousand miles in order to be long riders. But that it's never with me. It's never about how many miles am I doing. It's about, it's not about the destination. It's about who I meet, what I see, how I feel, what I do with my ponies along the way. Travelling is not a destination you arrive at. It's, it's the actual journey that matters. Well, there's, there's a quote. I was actually trying to find out who wrote it because I can't. I, I know it's in the back of my mind, but I can't find it. But it's the joy is in the getting there, and that's what it's all about. Yes, the getting there in terms of the actual, the process of getting there, but not the arrival, because in that wonderful film, Paint Your Wagon, the song which I sing a lot to myself, and people say it's like one of my anthems, is "Home is made for coming from, for dreams of going to." which with any luck will never come true. And that is much how I feel. I am never, ever happier than when I'm away with my ponies. My eyes on the horizon and also very much in the now kind of thing. So all you can think about is, are you OK? Most of all, is your pony OK? Where's food and water coming from? That kind of thing. Rather than thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week or the next month. And that's a very, it's a great state to be in. And then when you get back home again, it's an almighty crash back down to earth. You'll know that, Tom. I know that. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I mean, I've been on the side of the road with a broken wheel. It doesn't matter. We're on the side of the broken wheel, but we're not at home. The home's the last thing you're thinking about. So lands into John O'Groats. Um, and then, so so you come back, you come back uh, and hit the, hit the ground with a big slump because you've just done this amazing trip and it's all over. Um, so what happens next? You start thinking about another one? What happened was about, um, probably about a week, possibly less than that, perhaps three or four days before we reached Land's End, my husband Chris was going to come down and pick Elsa and I up. And I had been in regular touch with him and I had seen him a couple of times. But it, was an eight, it took us eight weeks riding every single day for eight weeks. We had two days off in eight weeks. So it was quite some going, averaging 25 miles a day. And... There aren't a lot of breeds of horse that could do that because some days we were riding nearly 40 miles. And so when I'm saying averaging 25 to an endurance rider, that sounds like nothing. 
But when we're riding over the mountains, we were off-road as much as we possibly could be. And so we've got to fit in that within those times. We've got to fit in finding farriers, getting ponies reshod, etc., etc. So that's an awful lot. You know, you're not going at 10 miles an hour or whatever endurance riders going at. We're going a lot more slowly than that. Map reading, sorting out everything else, finding food, etc. along the way. I remember in Devon, sitting in this um, village square. It was a very hot afternoon and we'd stopped to try and find an ice cream. The whole of that trip, we just seemed to be hungry. We never ever managed to eat three times a day on the whole trip. Sometimes it was once and we were forever hungry. And Elsa said, come on, mum, can we have an ice cream? So we stopped for an ice cream. But I have to say that by the time we got to Devon, there wasn't a lot of communication going on between us anymore. If you can imagine being with a sort of fairly hormonal teenager and, um, and we were, we'd had a, a lot of stresses along the way. And I remember going to a phone box and say, ringing Chris and saying, Chris, you need to speak to Elsa because otherwise I'm going to knock her head off. And I said, but the other problem is I don't want to come home. And I am very lucky to be married to somebody. It's probably why I married him in the first place is because he never questioned that. He's not offended by it. He doesn't take it personally. He just said, well, why is it taking you so long to realise that? He said, I've known from the day you set off that you were never going to want to come home. So what's the problem? So I did have to come home because I've got work. You know, I can't afford to just be away all the time. And as I say, I've got responsibilities here. I've got a son as well. And so um, I had to come home and I had to get straight back into work again. But my mind was always back on this trip. I'd never left it out of my mind of wanting to ride in the footsteps of the drovers. And there's something about when we were riding from John Groats to Land's End, we set off in the north to head south because we knew the north would be a lot more difficult. And coming over the mountains, in the, through over the most remote parts of Scotland, just with our ponies, and Lancer, my fell pony, very, very nearly died coming over the mountains. We had a horrible accident. And I was really confronted with what do I do now? But there's something about coming over those mountains. It changed me. It changed me forever, not just the accident. And part of my heart just never came down from there. And Elsa says exactly the same. She says it changed her and part of her is forever up there. So all I really wanted to do was then be out there even more. But I have to, I have quite a lot of ponies at home. At that time, we'd got nine or ten. And so um, I've got to pay for them and uh, things to do here. So I can't be away all the time. And perhaps you appreciate it all the more if you only travel part of the time. It sounds actually like it was a, a real rite of passage, actually, that journey. It was. We'd travelled, as I say, we'd travelled a fair bit before. We'd, we'd travelled with with Lancer, my fell pony at the time, um, my main riding pony. We'd travelled quite a lot with him. We'd driven quite a lot with him. So we'd travelled with my gypsy caravan and he was really bad in traffic. So we'd had our fair share of incidents of him rearing up and in the shafts and all sorts of disasters, running Elsa over, going through Longtown, running over her twice with the front wheels and then the back wheels on a narrow bridge when she was about seven. And um, Jake shouted, Mum, you've run her over. Oh no, you've run her over again. And me saying, I can't stop now, there's a tractor coming. Pick her up and put her on the cart. So we weren't inexperienced, if you like. We just, um, and through, through riding, I'd ridden a lot over the hills and over the mountains. So I was... Elsa was too. We were fit, the ponies were fit, and we were very well prepared. We'd done all we could. But nevertheless, nothing but nothing 
um, prepares you for doing a trip like that and it does change you. But you decided to do it again in 2016. Well, my next trip, my next big trip, I went away the following year, 2007, I went and rode across Wales with Lancer again. But by then he was 21 and um, Elsa's mare that we were riding from John O'Groats to Land's End with, as I say, she was in foal when we did that trip. And what except a foal pony would be capable of riding all those miles when carrying a foal? I don't mean that's cruelty, that's what they do on the hills, that's what they do naturally. And when we took her to the studs, they said that actually it was great because she was so fit and she was so trim instead of being overweight and cosseted. So, um, yeah, I rode across Wales in 2007, but it was 2010 before I could muster the money together again to go away for a while and just because of other things going on in life, other responsibilities. And so in 2010, I, I eventually got it together to ride from Skye to London in the footsteps of the drovers. And that is one of the things that have been burning at me for a long time. I had been working on drove roads, working on restoring drove roads in the south of Scotland. And I just got absolutely fascinated by the history of the routes, etc. And I wanted to trace the way they went as, as authentically as I could. And so I wanted to do it with two fell ponies. I asked, Elsa was 17 by this time, and I asked her if she would like to come with me. With me and she said, why would I want to do that, Mum? And so she agreed to come with me for a week. She said graciously she would give me a week of her time. And because coming down from Skye uh, down to Glencoe was the most challenging because we were way, way over the mountains. And I knew that it was going to be difficult doing that on my own with two ponies. And so for the first week, we rode a pony each. And then after that, I was travelling on my own, riding one pony and leading the other as a pack pony right the way down to London. I called it my drover's footsteps ride. And it was fantastic, you know, because in Scotland, there's a real awareness about People, it doesn't matter where they live, even in the middle of towns. Um, even when I was riding through Falkirk, I was riding through there on my own and say, riding one pony, leading another. And people would jump out from their houses and say, I know you. Now, this was partly because I'd been a page three girl and I, there'd been pictures of me in the rain with my ponies. I have to say, fully clothed in long black riding mackings, etc. Not exactly looking wonderful, but people had seen me in the paper. But... But it really, really sort of struck a chord with people throughout Scotland. And yes, there'd been things on the radio too, uh, because I was raising money for cancer research. And so because of that, and people were very keen to cover it in papers and on the radio, etc. And people would just stop by the side of the road and say, wow, you're following the drovers. It wasn't that I was travelling with ponies that really interested them. It was following the drovers. But in England, that is not the case. People are just not in touch with the droving side of it at all, even though there were up to 100,000 cattle a year going down from Scotland, down right the way down through um, Norfolk and going down to London. I mean, there were tens of thousands of cattle going down. And yet, as you go down the eastern side of the country, people have just lost touch with that altogether. So to me, the history of that was absolutely fascinating, riding along with my ponies. I mean, I'm sure they got very fed up because I talked to them all the time. And me saying, look, can you see Mickey? Can you see magic? Can you see what's, do you, what do you think the drovers were doing here? And their little ears twitch and uh, Mickey snorts at me. <laughs> Come on, Viv. Um, but, but I think it's absolutely fascinating thinking about the landscape like that and how everything has changed.
And how long did that journey take you? That was another eight weeks. So I went much more slowly on that in the same way that the drovers would have gone. Traditionally, they would have done about 12 miles a day, 10 to 12 miles a day, because they didn't want to lose weight off the cattle. And if they took them any faster, they'd start losing weight. Not so with the fell pony, who I can tell you that even riding 25 miles a day every day for eight weeks won't get any thinner. But but then when I got down to England, the drovers would have gone, say, 20 miles a day. So that's what I was aiming to do, was just try and follow where they went and where they would have stayed at night and that kind of thing. Again, it changed me significantly in terms of after that, any journey, it's not enough just to go out for a ride. You know, it is on a daily basis. But if I'm away on a longer trip, I want there to be more meaning to it than just saying, oh, what a nice day, I'm out on the hill. I'm interested in looking at things beyond that. So you've travelled the length of the country twice now, um, and then you decide to do it again um, with a project you call Horseland. You had the question there about whether we are still at heart a horse land, a horse nation. So this journey was travelling around, visiting the, the chalk horses in the south. It started off, for my 40th birthday, Chris and I went with our black ponies and we rode the Ridgeway. So... When I was at university, I was there as a mature student, and when I was 25, 26, Chris was working on a lambing contract in um, Oxfordshire at Easter. And so in my Easter holidays, I went to stay with him for a couple of weeks. And because he was working non-stop all the time, one weekend I went for a walk and I went up on the, the ridgeway and I saw the Uffington white horse. I'd never seen it before, I knew very little about it. And I just thought, wow, I didn't have fell ponies at the time. And I thought, one day I'm going to come back here and... I'm going to ride over there and it's going to be with a black horse. And so, as I say, I was 25, 26 then, and it took me until I was 40 to go back again. But for my 40th birthday, Chris and I went and we rode the Ridgeway and we stopped on top of the Uffington White Horse. But when I was researching that, I found various books and I found that there were a lot more white horses all around England, but there was also one in Scotland. And I got a map at the time and I put red dots on for all the, where those white horses were. And I said, one day, I'm going to ride with my black ponies, linking all of these white horses together. And But then that meant there was a great big gap because the most northerly white horse is up near Fraserburgh in Aberdeenshire. And so I thought, well, the next white horse is not until Thirsk. That's an awfully long way without really looking at anything. And then I realised there were other things as well. There were, for example, this huge land art sculpture in Wales, Sultan, the pit pony, built on an old um, pit, a reclaimed pit site. And it is absolutely incredible. It's best seen from the air. But I thought, wow, and, and all sorts of other things. You know, the Kelpies at, uh, near Falkirk, which have become one of the most well-known symbols of Scotland now. And there was also a great big sculpture in London um, of three horses along the banks of the Thames called Turning the Tide, which had all sorts of climate change things too, but they used horses for it. And it started prompting in my mind this whole question, you know, that in days gone by, white horses were really, really symbolic in terms of um, our culture, going back thousands and thousands of years. And then for, for so many generations, we have been dependent on horses for travel. If you look at the Picts, all their carvings are of ponies, native ponies, basically. And so that's where this question came from in my mind. We, we always have been, Britain always has been a horse nation. It has been a horse land. But are, is that still true or is it not too, uh, true? And how important are horses in our culture now? And how is it that all of these people, you go to the Uffington White Horse and 
I'm there with my two black ponies on Bank Holiday Monday, helping re-chalk the Uffington White Horse. But I spoke to everybody else I met that day and the other people who were helping re-chalk the horse. None of them have any interest in horses. It's way, way beyond that. So you made this trip and about, I believe, 1,400 miles into this trip, um, you pulled your back. I did. It never, ever, ever crossed my mind that I would not be physically capable of completing this trip. So I I don't sit in the saddle all day. I get off and walk um, part of the time because it's much, much better for my ponies. They're very sturdy. They have incredible stamina, but I have very arthritic hips and my ponies are very, very wide indeed. Doctors have said, perhaps you should get another breed. No chance, never, ever. So um, I start off riding for about two hours and then I get off and I walk for 10 minutes. And then as the day goes on, the, the length between the walks get less and less as I get sore and sore. But I know what that's like. You just eat an awful lot of Nurofen and get on with the job. And it's, you know, it's never, ever stopped me. And I was absolutely fine until I got to Hampshire. And then somebody invited me. Again, I was doing that ride in aid of Cancer Research and Macmillan um, Cancer Support. And somebody asked if I would like to go to a show, which to me is like, oh, no, I don't really want to. Thank you. But they said this is an opportunity to raise some more money. And it was very wet. And I sat on Mickey all day holding magic behind me, my other pony, and then had to ride around the show ring in the rain. And at the end of the day, my back was killing me. And before that, it had never, ever bothered me at all. But I knew that my leg had been going numb. One of my legs had been going completely dead for weeks and I just ignored it. And I just thought, oh, so what? Get on with it. And by the time I got to Sussex, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't lie down. I couldn't stand up. Um, I really could barely move. And I thought, I can just do this. I've only got 90 miles left to do. I can do this. Just see on through it. And then I went to set off and basically I collapsed just near Lewis. And two women found me in a heap on the ground. And, uh, yeah, I I could not believe it. I had no intention of stopping, but I had to. So, so you've the amazing highs and then that's a disaster, isn't it? So you didn't get to complete it, except you did, didn't you? <laughs> so I can t- say this now. We're in 2021 and that was 2016. And it has taken me this long to stop crying about it, which is absolutely pathetic. But I sen- felt such a sense of failure, I can't tell you. And as I said at the beginning of this, I set my own rules on these trips. Nobody else has said, Viv, you have to finish here or you have to finish there. But my plan was the last white horse is a modern white horse I was going to at Folkestone. But then I was going to ride on from there into London and I'd arranged to finish at the War Memorial. And I had no big press splurge for it, but I got special. I've ridden through London before, so no big deal. And um, I'd got all things lined up and this is what I really wanted to do. And I just... I thought I cannot leave it. It was totally unfinished business, but my back just wasn't up to it. And I thought if I'm going to take ponies all the way back down, it really wasn't that far to ride. Um, And I thought it's a lot of money and a lot of effort to go back down there. And I couldn't count on the fact that my back was actually going to be up to it Uh, because riding one horse and leading another, you're always at a twist. Well, I am because I always lead with my left hand. And so it was 2019 before I was able to go back down. But I did go back down and I did finish it and uh, no big song and dance or whatever. And on my last day, 
Elsa, my daughter, now an awful lot older, came and rode with me. So my pack pony that I was leading, she came and rode it that day. So we finished together, which was just tremendous. Right, OK, so now here we go. This is the bit that um, everybody's been waiting for. This is the bit of the show where we get to call the herd home. Um, so what we're going to do, I'm going to stand back from the microphone a little bit. And I'm gonna, I'll go first. I'm going to call my mares as if I'm calling them for a bale of hay. And then I'd like you to do the same. Call yours home. OK, so here we go. OK. Come on! Come on! like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free. As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Fell Pony films to our Fell Pony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash fellpony. So, okay, so let's talk about the ponies because we've not really talked about them that much. You've got um, Mirthwaite, Mikado. Northwaite Mikado, so yes, I bought him as a two-year-old. I went to the Cowper Day sale at Kirby Stephen, uh, trying to buy a pony for the kids. And uh, there was a pony there, which was very cheap, and it had been tied up on a bit of grass outside. But Tom Capstick was there, who I knew well anyway, because I'd used his stallion before. And I was talking to him, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, it's okay, Viv, but it's not special. And I said, so? And he said, as he would do. I've got a really special one for you at home. You know, the sales pitch was good. And so we arranged to go and meet him at Felland an hour later. And so we went there and he had herded this pony who was really untouched uh, into the yard and peering at me from out of this huge black forelock was this snorting devil, basically. Not very big, but very wide. And he was two years old and completely rough off the fell. And I said, what's his name? And he said, he's called Mickadoo. And it was only when we went back to pick him up some weeks later that we picked him up, put him in the trailer, herded him into the trailer, and we were sat at Kirby Stephen outside the baker's getting some lunch. And Chris opened his passport. He said, he's not called Mikadoo at all. He says he's called Murthwaite Mikado. And of course, he was named after one of the great fell ponies of all time, which was called the Mikado. And I always teased Tom about this afterwards, but I loved... Uh, Mickey so much. He was my son's pony for quite a while, but he was not wonderful at pony club. He did uh, pony club games, but his idea was that you went as fast as you could and you did not stop at the end of the bending race. You just kept on going and it's not the way to encourage your son to ride to keep seeing him dumped on the ground in front of all of the girls riding their thoroughbreds and their white joppers. So I sort of inherited Mickey and he's turned out to be the best ever travelling pony. And I loved him so much, so I went back to Tom and bought uh, another Mirthwaite pony, closely related to Mickey, but very different type, actually. Mirthwaite Magic Spell. So she is out of uh, Mirthwaite Magic, and all of Magic's foals were called Magic something. And so I bought her as a yearling, and Magic will now be 18, I think. And then I liked them so much that at the dispersal sale, when Tom very sadly died, and all his ponies were being sold off. I really, really did not need any more ponies at that time, but I thought this is a one-off opportunity. And I had sold a pony. I don't normally sell ponies, but I'd sold one that year that I'd bred because I had too many. But then I went to the sale and I did have my trailer in tow and I bought Mickey's half-sister, Mirthwaite Morning Glory, and her six-week-old filly foal, Mirthwaite Posh. 
So former Earthweight ponies and various others, yeah. And Morning Glory, she came off the fell age 11 and had seen nothing but wildness and you've got her working, yeah? So she was, I can see from her passport that she was down in Gloucestershire as a yearling, I think. So I know Tom had um, a friend down there who, so whether she was taken to a show down there, I don't know as a youngster. Apart from that, I, as far as I know, she was just on the fell. And so she came to me and she was 11. And so I just left her with Posh. I obviously, she was very un- unhandled, uh, but we, I had her in over the winter because my fields are very wet. And so to save the fields, they live in a big cattle barn. So she got handled more. And then in the spring, I weaned Posh from her, her foal. And there's the annual fell pony camp at the Linos. And I decided I wanted to take Glory to it. So the camp is the first weekend in May. So about three weeks before that, I put a head collar on her and then I put a bridle on her and then I put a saddle on her. And when I took her to camp, I can't remember the exact number of times now, but when I took her to camp, that I think that was the sixth time she'd ever been sat on. But she is an absolutely great pony. She's just got a fantastic character, fantastic nature. Uh, she doesn't snort like Mickey, but she has the stamp, not just not just in terms of physically, uh, but also in terms of her temperament. And to me, that's just as important. The temperament and the character is just as important as what they actually look like. Absolutely. Temperament is way top of my list. Yeah. If you're working, you've got to, if you're working animals, you've, you've got to be able to, they've got to be able to get on with you and you've got to be able to get on with them. And you've got to be able to lead them into the big wide world. I need ponies that are brave. I need ponies that are, have tremendous stamina. Well, you don't know that when they're a youngster, but you need something. I need something that is not going to bulk, that will walk across a single sleeper across a deep ravine and will follow in my footsteps without me holding it and without me looking back. That's what I want from a pony. I need a pony that will walk right through the middle of London past St Paul's Cathedral. And, you know, Mickey is not the ideal pony you would have thought for that because every single pigeon going through London, he's going (laughs) and diving sideways. But the fact is that at the end of the day, every single day, Mickey is just keen to keep going. He never ever, he and I never ever want to stop. I think any fell pony to me is probably capable of doing long distance riding, but I am looking for one that will just give me everything and most of all will really bond with me. Great. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, okay. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the kit you use. So you're carrying it, you, you've got no support, so you're carrying everything yourself. So that's you and everything you need. Yep. You've got you've got to have shelter, you've got to have mm-hmm. food, you've got to ha- you've got to be able to look after the pony, tether the pony or fence whatever the pony in the evening. So space is very tight and weight it's all about weight, isn't it? It is about weight, but if I've got a pack pony with me, then I've got a lot more space. When Elsa and I rode from John Groats to Land's End, we didn't have a pack pony. So we didn't take a tent. Because we, I don't think that realistically, for me to carry everything I need for that long, plus a tent, plus some means of securing a horse, is not realistic. And the other thing is that if we're riding, uh, if we're riding and not leading a pony, we can go a lot faster. It doesn't mean we gallop all the way, but if there's grass and it's good ground, we will canter. Even if I'm doing, 20, you know, even if I'm doing a lot of miles a day, we will do, and the ponies enjoy it. But after that, what I said was, I hated that whole constraint. Apart from injuring his leg coming down uh, over the highlands, Lancer got covered in ticks and he got Lyme's disease, tick fever, and he very, very nearly died from it uh, when we were coming down through Scotland. And I had to swap at that point. I had a choice of 
of not um, of waiting until he got better. But there was no way that at that time we actually thought he was going to die. But because I was doing it, raising money for charity and we had a charity night set up with Bob Champion in Lancashire. And so the people who were helping organise that kept ringing me up and saying, you are going to be here on this day. There ain't no choice. You have to be here on this day. And we had booked accommodation for six weeks of our eight week trip. And it put huge, huge pressure on us all the time that we had to keep going to, to stick to the schedule. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. If we met somebody really nice and they said, would you like to come in my field tonight? We, we had to say, no, sorry, because we've arranged to stay here. And it, it was just awful. It went against the grain to me. So after that, I said, I'm not doing that. I'd rather have my tent with me. So, so on my two big long trips and on various other trips since then, I've taken a pack pony. And that means that I have to carry very little on my riding pony and with my pack saddle, a special pack saddle, which then doesn't slip. Um, it's not like trying to put bags on top of a riding saddle, which are inclined to slip without the weight of the rider to balance it. And so I bought a proper pack saddle and had bags, panniers made for it. And that has really freed me up. So then I carry a tent, a small tent. I carry a sleeping bag, um, sleeping mat, and I carry portable electric fancy and hobbles as well because my ponies are uh, magic in particular is not very good at staying put. She limbos underneath brand electric fence with a brand new battery in it. She is under it quick as a flash. You're using the um, custom pack rigging pack saddles, are you? I absolutely am. So this partly came about from from the Long Riders Guild. So by then, after riding to Land's End, I've been in very close touch with them a lot of the time. Um, they've become very, very good friends, but also they've asked me to do various things for them and I feel that I have a duty if you like um, to do whatever I can to help them to spread the word help other people that kind of thing and so I met somebody who has fell ponies in Switzerland who came across to an international fell pony convention and I was talking to him and he said that he used uh, Swiss army pack saddles and he said I can get you one if you want and then I was speaking to the Long Riders Guild and they said don't do it Viv don't do it they said they're really, really heavy and they're very unforgiving. And Peter used to be in the army. So and he I've been over to see him since. And he does great things with his ponies there with these pack saddles. But the Long Riders Guild said anybody now who is traveling with pack ponies in the world on a long trip is basically using custom pack rigging saddles. And so uh, I ordered, I sort of um, bit the bullet spoke to Kelly as I'm sure you did too I remember giving Kelly just yeah, yeah Kelly's amazing yeah Kelly's brilliant so I remember saying to you you know ring Kelly and you think ooh, ring in Canada that's really expensive but he was just so helpful and he's very very knowledgeable and very very passionate and so I ordered my pack saddle and the first in 2010 I borrowed a cinch I just couldn't afford the extra stuff so somebody else who had ridden to Jordan from Wales lent me their mohair cinch and I codged together various other things, but I've since bought a double mohair cinch. Um, I don't have the other official stuff. I don't put bridging. I have a crupper on, but I don't actually use bridging. I don't find I need it. You're using bags rather than boxes. I am because um, I know with your trips, Tom, you're doing you're over the hills. But a lot of mine, uh, when I've been travelling right the way through Britain, I'm often on bridleways as well. And so I'm going through gates quite often. And so if I was using boxes... I would have to take them off each time unless it's a field gate. If I'm going through a narrower bridle gate, 
I'd have to take them off every single time because either they would break or they would bust something on my pack saddle. And so my bags are not as bulky and they just have that bit more give in them for my pack saddle. And I had them made so they fitted. They were just the right length for my tent poles. But I'm, I'm not stuck to using one particular tent. But I knew exactly what size I wanted them to be. Because I'd been on a trip with somebody else who had a pack saddle. Well, they didn't have a proper pack saddle. They had a treeless saddle, and then but they had proper panniers on it. But the panniers were huge. And I wanted mine to be individual. Because if, if you've got huge panniers and they're just one piece of kit, I'd never be able to lift them on and off in one go. And then you have to unpack every individual thing, which is just totally tedious. And also, I think it is then far too tempting to pack too much gear. And I know there's other people who will take a portable stool or a portable chair away with them. To me, that's not me. So so I do. I think it's quite good discipline to have less stuff. OK, but you must have you must have at least one luxury. You must have something. Um, I don't really know what my luxury is, actually. A clean pair of knickers. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great luxury, which isn't always afforded. Um, you know, the main thing is my head torch. I've become, my kids think that I'm an absolute anorak on the subject of head torches because head torches haven't really been invented when Elsa and I rode from John O'Groats to Land's End. And then when we're riding, it's 11 o'clock at night and we can't see the map and we can't see where we're going. And we've got one head torch between us and accidentally the button has gone on. And then, you know, so it's got the batteries are dead. So that's probably one of the most important things. And I think apart from that, yeah, it doesn't really matter. So have you any idea what kind of weight you're carrying? Yeah, when I'm using a pack pony, I'm looking at somewhere between 10 and 12 kilos per side. And of course, pack ponies, fell ponies were designed to, they were bred for years and years and years to carry huge weights. So to them, that is quite lightweight. But bear in mind that I've got to lift the saddlebags on. I've got to lift the panniers on. And that is plenty. That that gives me everything I need in there. So that's 10 to 12 kilos per side. And then I have a top bag as well, which goes between the bars on the pack saddle, in which I put my sleeping bag and my carry mat, etc. So that's just soft stuff because it's easier to stuff in. So in my packs, on one side, I've got a tent and my cooking gear, etc. And on the other side, I've got my, uh, my electric fence uh, kit. But bear in mind that I've got so many maps with me because if you're on a 1500 mile ride, even if you have tried to send ahead of you, um, I try and be organised and think, right, okay, well, I think I'll go here. But then I have been caught out because if you change your route, you're nowhere near where your next lot of maps is, and that's a disaster. So I do have a lot of maps with me. And um, the last couple of trips I've done, I've also taken my luxury has been my laptop. Uh, which seems stupid, but I've taken a, laptop, a lightweight laptop with me, which has been really, really useful. So um, working out routes, obviously, that, that's one of the challenges. What are the other challenges? And despite the challenges, what's stopping anybody else going and doing it? OK, so the biggest challenge of all is the ponies. You know, without your ponies, you can't go anywhere. And the ponies' welfare has to come before anything. So the absolute biggest challenge is making sure that you have got a saddle that fits properly, whether it's a pack saddle or a riding saddle or whatever, and that your ponies don't hurt themselves. Huge advantage to travelling with fell ponies because they don't generally do anything to themselves, they don't generally hurt the legs or anything like that, so that's not to say never, but generally they are really, really hardy. But even so, things can go wrong, and shoeing. 
I shoe my ponies. I know a lot of people choose to travel barefoot, but I couldn't do the miles I do without my ponies being shod. And that isn't because I go on the road. If you go over the mountains, in places it's really stony. So on the first week of any trip, I know that normally um, if I'm away driving or whatever, I do 350 miles on a set of shoes. And whenever I'm away on a long trip, in the first week on a trip, I've got through a whole set of shoes. And so no matter how good your planning is, I try and plan it out, at least for the first few things, and say, right, OK, where am I going to need a farrier? Because trying to find a farrier at very short notice is so stressy. And if a pony loses a shoe, it doesn't matter how well planned I am, I have still lost shoes on every trip I've done. And farriers are probably the biggest challenge of all, but, but not insurmountable. What would Viv say to the young Viv who had the dream of travelling with ponies all those years ago? Go for it. Go for it when you're younger. Just go and do it. Um, I think now I wish I'd had the courage. I wish that I had recognised how much I wanted to do it and just gone for it. You know, perhaps when I first left school, perhaps what I should... I think now what I should just have done is headed off with a horse somewhere. And how I wished I had travelled the world with a pony or three. So, uh, and then as soon as you start getting ties, it's more difficult to do that. And I know there are people who've been away driving, but some people have been away riding and they've taken very young kids with them. But once you make that sort of, you go down that road, it does make it much more difficult. And because if you have more animals, then you can't take all the animals with them. If we're driving, we can take dogs with us, but otherwise I can't. I've got dogs, I've got cats, I've got sheep, and there's all the ponies at home and somebody's got to look after those. So I think what the, what the old Viv wishes she had done is just hit the road when I was much, much younger. Get out there and do it. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, um, next one. What have you learned from your ponies? I've learnt, I suppose, just that anything is possible. Never, ever, ever give up. Keep going no matter what. That they are... You don't see them crying like I do. You don't see them looking grumpy or whatever. They are just... If I say stoic, it makes them sound quite laid back, and they're not. They're just such tremendous characters, and Mickey in particular never, ever loses his sense of humour. So it doesn't matter what you do on him, but he's 23 now, and still, when you're cantering him, he still dips his shoulder and dives sideways to see if he can dump you off. And then he curls his lip back and laughs at you. And although that's very frustrating, it's also... He's just such a character, and I adore them for that. And once once they've gained your trust, once you have gained <laughs> their trust, um, <laughs> uh, they will do pretty much anything you ask, won't they, these ponies? They absolutely will. So to me, what it's about is, I don't set about some deliberate training with them, but it's just the more you do with them, the more, yes, there is that trust. Once they've gained my trust, you said, do I ever completely trust them? I have learnt to my cost, don't completely trust them, don't leave magic behind the electric fence, <laughs> don't don't put hobbles on because you'll find them th three hours later. Um, so, But there is a very, very close relationship between us, so if I am off and leading, I don't need to hold on to their reins. I do, obviously, if I'm on a road, but I don't need to. I don't need to hold on to the reins, I don't need to hold on to a room. And if I take one step to the left, they will take one step to the left because we are completely in tune with each other. And Posh, who's my youngest pony, so she's five this year, and I've just backed her last year. And 
So we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot of learning to do together, but it's partly from doing long trips and being in difficult situations. That's where that bond comes from. And you become a team. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Where, I think I know the answer to this question, but where are you happiest, Viv? High on the hills with my ponies. Perhaps I, you know, I really, really love people. So lockdown is hard because I'm not seeing people. But I love people, but at the same time, I am never happier than with all of my animals, but particularly with my ponies. And so at the moment, then it is being out in the barn. It's frustrating having to muck out, etc. But putting my hand underneath those huge shaggy manes and giving them a big hug. And if I say it sounds really soppy, but they will give me a kiss on the nose and then give me a biff and say, come on, got a carrot or something. But, but really being high on the hills with them and just looking into the distance and thinking, where next? Right, okay, so um, we're winding up now. So I've got three quick questions for you. Uh, one word, one word answers. <laughs> uh, okay, this is tricky for you, actually. First question. <laughs> first, no, I didn't mean that. I meant the first question's gonna be tricky, uh, but both. Okay, first question. Ride or drive? Very tricky. So far, I would say ride, but I think in the future it may be drive. And am I allowed to say why? Yeah, go on. So the ride is because I'm wrapped round that pony. We are one. I'm not sitting on a pony. I'm wrapped round them. I We are literally one and the same. Driving, you're still very in tune with them, but you're not physically quite as close to that. But because my hips are really grotty, I think that longer term, it may be more driving. And then you can put more than one together and then it starts to get really fun. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. Okay. Second question. Favourite pony or line of fell ponies in the history of the breed? I'd have to say the Murthwaite ponies. And of the favourite pony, although I never met him, the pony that... Tom Capstick said was in every fell pony's breeding that it was worth its salt and that I now find, it wasn't deliberate, but I've now found features high in all of my ponies' pedigrees is T. Bay Campbellton Victor. I believe, I might be wrong here, but I think I'm right actually. Um, keep T. Bay Campbellton Victor, it was a misprint actually, it should have been T. Bay Campbelltown Victor and it got put wrong into the stud book. Yeah. Yeah. Forever known as T. Bay Campbellton Victor, who was actually a very small pony, I believe. I think he was, but... I size doesn't matter, does it? That um, you know that proves to me. Mickey, when I bought him, was thirteen hands and half an inch, and I always thought he'd make nearly fourteen hands. And the only way Mickey's fourteen hands is in his girth and in his breadth, and he hasn't. He's never got any bigger. He's thirteen hands and half an inch. I'm five foot six, and people say, "Gosh, that's a very small pony." But if you ride him, people have said who sat on him, "Gosh, he's like riding a fifteen hand horse." And he isn't. He's much better than riding a 15-hand horse. But it really, really doesn't matter because he takes up your leg and all all of those things. But if you've got a pony that's got plenty of bone and plenty of substance about it, you, why do you need a bigger horse? It's just further to get on and off. It's further to fall off. It's more difficult to put the pack saddle on. It's more difficult to pack up, uh, tack up. It's more difficult to do the gates. I don't really see why you need it. And I think there's great strength in, you know, traditionally they will have been bred to be quite small, weren't they? And they will have been limited by being on the hill. Exactly. Third question, black, brown, bay or grey? Black. 
yeah, had to be for you, didn't it, I think? Black, but I do have a grey. I have a very overhyped grey, a well-brow pony. I know you've um, interviewed Andrew as well. And I have the biggest well-brow pony in the world, who's just about 15 hands, who was a lovely steel grey and by the age of seven had already gone a grotty white. But he is absolutely fantastic. And I haven't had a bay yet. I have a real soft spot for bays, but so far I've always stuck to black. The grey is the one that Chris had at Linnell, wasn't it? Yes, well-brow drifter, his official name is, but we call him Beans. Beans. Um, Beans. That's it. I remember Beans. I remember yeah. How could you not remember? <laughs> yes. Cool. Okay. Viv, uh, that has been really, really, really interesting talking to you. Such an inspiration, you know, really, to just, you just get out and do it. And I think also with you, you're so generous and you give people time and your help. So just thank you so much for joining us this evening. And um, where are you going next? At the moment, because of lockdown, I had great plans for last year and then obviously couldn't do them. And so I will get so frustrated if I do that again this year. So I'm not planning a huge big trip. I did a a pony pilgrimage last year to Holy Island, the second time I've done a pilgrimage to or from pony, uh, Holy Island. And at the moment, I've just got various shorter trips planned this year. So sort of a week at a time, but also because I really want to do more on pack horse routes and with my ponies. And so I was planning to do Office Dyke and I was planning to do Drove Roads of Wales and all around England again. But at the moment, let's see what happens with COVID restrictions. And this summer, I think it's better to say as none of us know what's really going to happen, I'm just looking at doing um, a couple of days at a time or even a day at a time of just featuring more on the historic side of things of what fell ponies used to do, what they do now, and really focusing on that instead of knocking up the miles. Micro adventures. Yeah. Well, Viv, it has been really, really lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us and I wish you all the best on all of your trips and I hope to see you on the side of the road with a cup of tea somewhere <laughs> i hope you don't see me lying on the ground by the side of the road tom and now do you know like all all winter and the whole of last year too it's just i have to suppress you know what it's like you have to keep the lid on things and now i'm here i just want to go and jump on a pony now and set off into the night because because that's all i really want to do but we can't so yeah it'll be more special when i do thank you tom and thank you for your time and giving me the opportunity listening back to that conversation helped me realize that the connection between people and horses is so deep that it is almost beyond words maybe even earlier than words viv's adventures are proof that the more you put in the more you get out of a fell pony they are one of life's givers Thank you so much for joining me and listening to the show. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. A huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.